when I was younger, like five, six, seven, eight, there was a magical question that would get my attention uh, whenever something was going awry. I grew up in a family with um, two older sisters. I was the youngest brother, pesky little brother. The, you know, Eddie, what I'm talking about, the annoying little brother. And, uh, and so in my family, we didn't have such of a thing as like explosions. We had like slow burns. Our fights happened slowly over time. My sister would change the TV channel. I would get up and yank the remote away from her. She would look at me, get off of her chair, kick me, take the remote back. And then, feeling indignant and violated, I would get up and choke my sister. And at that moment, every single time, my parents would walk in when I was the one, like, you know, in the chokehold. And they would ask this question, this magical question. This question is so good for us to ask. It's, it's really good for me to ask myself, even still today. They would just say four words. They would say, what's going on here? And everyone would stop. And we'd be like, huh. I remember feeling like a seven-year-old hearing that question. What's going on here? And having my sister in a headlock grabbing the remote, being like, I wanted to watch Lassie. The reruns, obviously. I'm not that old. And I, this isn't the way to go about it, I guess. Here's the remote. What's going on here? It's such a powerful question. It's a question that instantly causes many of us just to, to pause and to go, okay, let's reevaluate things for a moment. Let's just like take, take stock, take inventory. What's going on? Check my heart. And I wonder if you've ever had a moment in your life where you've asked the question, hey, what's going on here? What's actually happening here? Like, actually, I mean, here. What's going on? Here in HP, you're, this is the church that you're at today, Sunday morning. Welcome. You guys made it. What's going on here? The reason it was so important for me to have that question asked to me when I was a little kid is because I just didn't think about what was going on. I just did whatever my heart told me to do, and, and, and it led me into some folly. And if we don't, as a church, stop sometimes and ask the question, what's going on here? We can be prone just to let the frenzy of activity sweep us away into whatever comes our way and miss how we're supposed to act in the first place. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in a series together here at HP called This is HP. We're going to be asking the question over the next four weeks, what's going on here? What's going on here? That's a, a question that actually inspired the writings of two books in the New Testament. Uh, back uh, in, in the first century, uh, there was a man, most excellent man. His name was Theophilus. Theophilus was a Greek guy who uh, woke up one day believing in Jesus, convinced of the resurrection, convinced of Jesus' power, and, and started assimilating into the body life of the church at that time, only to realize that in his community, he was the only Greek dude in the church. Everybody else was Jewish. He had that moment where he goes, what's going on here? And is it okay for me to be here? Is it okay for me to, like, be with you guys? I mean, you're all Jewish, but you don't practice Judaism. You practice, I guess, Christianity. You follow Jesus. But I'm Greek. I'm not Jewish. Is there some stuff that I need to do to make me Jewish? Is there some stuff that you need to do to become more Greek? Like, what's going on here? Is it okay for me to be here with you worshiping Jesus? Theophilus was so concerned about this question, what's going on here? that he commissioned, he hired an investigative journalist named Luke. Luke, by trade, was a doctor. And, and he hired Luke, because he could write, to go and interview hundreds of people who had known the Jesus story and the Jesus movement and to write down 
for him in answer to the question, what's going on here? Is it okay for me to be here in this church family? And so Luke went about his job recording down, interviewing people, and he put into two volumes. We, have, we call them today the, apostle, the Gospel of the Apostle, uh, St. Luke, and the Acts of the Apostles. In your Bible, as you're memorizing in Awana, it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, X, Ro. That's a song I just made up that's terrible, but uh, you, you had some device that was like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then X. But actually, we should really move that around somehow because Luke wrote one book, two volumes. It's Luke and then Acts. To, to answer the question for Theophilus, what's going on? Here. And so I want you to open up with me. We're going to be rooted in the book of Acts over the next four weeks. I want you to open up to Acts chapter 2 in your copy of Scripture. Luke records for us a really good, a really good answer to a really good question of what's going on here. And it's a question that I think if we ask this question of ourselves as we see what Luke gives the answer to, it might save us from a frenzy of activity that has no merit or fruitfulness at all. Who's in, in favor of us? not wasting our time. Amen? Amen. Yeah, so uh, with that said, I'm going to preach 41 verses today. <clears throat> and I have seven points. And I got the first service out on time. I'm just going to say, I never do that for the second service. I'm sorry. We'll do it now. Look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Here's how my Bible reads. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Everybody say arrived. Arrived, arrived is a word that only shows up three times in the New Testament. Every single time, Luke is the one who uses it. It, it. It's used to denote more than just the sequence of time, but the priority and intensity of an event. There was something huge. The wedding day arrived, right? right? Uh, this is a monumental word used to foreshadow something huge that's about to happen. Every time Luke uses it, it's, it's a big meaning is coming ahead. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And we're going to get through all 41 verses, but we need to just stop right here because you've got to ask yourself, well, who's the they? And let's be honest, we live in 2019. We don't really know what Pentecost is today, do we? So the they, let's just clear that up really fast, was the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. Um, earlier, Jesus had selected disciples, lived his life with them. They, they, they went with him to the cross, some of them, and then they gathered again here in this place, all with the exception of Judas, who betrayed Jesus and then felt guilty over it and hung himself. In the absence of one of the 12, the church gathered together and said, we should appoint another person to his office. And so Acts chapter 1, Matthias is chosen as his replacement. So there's 12 apostles together and about 108, a specific number, about 108 other people. I, I say that because earlier in Acts chapter 1, it says the number of people in the room was about 120. It's verse 15. About 120. I look around this room, we're more than 120, we're right about there, you know, maybe, maybe some more. Um, I'm told that this week for VBS, we have more kids already registered than the amount of people who are waiting in this room that day. It's kind of a cool thing, right? You guys really hate kids. <laughs> First service was like, what? That's amazing. Let me change, that's probably my fault, I probably didn't deliver that. I'm told that this coming week, we have more kids registered to come to VBS than actually were waiting in this room that day. 
so manipulative. <laughs> That's a cool thing. Um, 120 people, it could seem to us like a very modest number of people. Um, but what I want to draw our attention to is the fact that while it's a modest number of people, may we never be the type of church that despises small gatherings. When God wants to show up and show off, he doesn't often rent a stadium and pack it. When God wants to do an incredible miracle that changes the seismic landscape of spirituality going forward, he doesn't you know, rent out the United Center. He often will do a miracle when people are least expecting it. So these people, they were gathered in Jerusalem waiting, we think, in the upper room, probably the same upper room where Jesus had his last meal. They were waiting. Why were they waiting? Well, because in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, uh, just wait here in Jerusalem and the power of the Spirit will fall upon you and you will be my witnesses. And so these people were waiting all together in one place for something to happen. The day was Pentecost. Pentecost causes confusion today because we have Pentecostal churches and we think that this is sort of a new phenomenon. But Pentecost was actually one of the three major feasts in Judaism. In Judaism, you had Passover, you had Pentecost, and then you had a feast of booths. Each one of these feasts required that men from all over the nation would make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to pay homage and to be a part of the feast and be a part of the celebrations. Three times a year, men would have to go make this journey. Sometimes their families accompanied them, sometimes they didn't. It was just the men were required to do this. And we love Passover, don't we? Because it was at the Passover time when Jesus gave up his life and became the Passover lamb for us who took away the sins of the world. He sacrificed himself. But we as a people don't talk too much about Pentecost. In the Jewish faith, the Jewish tradition, Pentecost, it means the 50th. Everybody say 50th of what? Don't you have that question? You're like, great, the 50th what? Uh, Pentecost literally means the 50th. It's the 50th day from Passover. So they'd have Passover, they'd have their week, and then there would be a week of weeks. Seven times seven is 49. The next day would be the 50th, that would be Pentecost. This is how God drew it up in Leviticus. And Pentecost was a time for them to come together and, and to offer back to the Lord the first fruits of their harvest. I um, picked my first squash out of my garden last night. It's yellow. It's great. It looks beautiful. I don't want to give it up. You know what I mean? You know, like the first thing that you get out of the garden, you're like, oh, man, let's see how this one goes. I'm so excited about this. God designed it that Pentecost would be the moment that they would give back to God the first fruits. And here's why. Because God was instilling in them this value that God is deserving of the first. God is deserving of the best. That all that we have comes down from God and is to be given back to him. Pentecost was a way for people to be reminded that God was in control of the harvest. God was in control of their supply. We would say it this way, that um, it's got to be knee-high by the 4th of July. And this year, it's not. And how many of you know someone who's a little depressed about that? A farmer, agriculture person, someone who's worried, right? See, you and I, we take it for granted that we don't farm the land, but... Um, these people were an agrarian society, so the festival of Pentecost was a huge deal to say, thank you, God. May you continue to supply for our needs. And so here they were in this room. Let's see what happens in verse 2. A great 
monumental moment is upon them. Pentecost has arrived. Let's see what arrives. Verse 2. Are you all with me? Are the Baptists in the room worried about what I'm about to say next? Okay. You'll see it. It's fine. It's the word of God. Nothing to be afraid of. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire. This is the kind of metaphorical language that Luke is using. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the reason you guys all chuckled before I said, are you worried about what's coming? If you're like new to church, you're like, I don't get the joke. It's because this passage, this text, these three verses right here have given risen uh, and division to many different types of churches in our world. And my aim today is not to say anything about any of that. I'm not here to affirm or deny whether or not this was a one-time miracle that was used just to prove the fact that God was in motion and God was doing something that only God could do. And I'm not here to affirm or deny whether or not this was a continual thing that maybe all Christians are supposed to pursue. And here's why I'm not here to do either of those things. Because that's a distraction. That's a distraction from where the text actually wants to push us. And as your pastor, I want you to see the entirety of what God is doing, not just the magnificent thing that God did. Amen? So let's see it. Let's see what God pushes us to. These people were waiting and they received the Spirit. It was so, here's what we have to agree upon. Receiving the Spirit, which Jesus said was coming in chapter 1. The Spirit falls on them like a mighty rushing wind. The, the event manifested a sign that was so unlikely and so unpredictable. It could only have been the Spirit of God falling upon his people. This is a miracle. And here's the, here's the point. The first church, when they gathered to worship, they did so miraculously, in the power of the Spirit. This was no ordinary crowd. The Spirit rushed upon them and changed them from some gathering into something otherly. And it was the Spirit that did this. Notice verse 4, who's operating. It's the Spirit in motion. It wasn't the capacity of the individual to know how to speak a different language. It was the movement of the Spirit of God to give the utterance. It was his power, not theirs, that demonstrated his presence. So I believe the first believers, when, when the first church gathered together, they worshiped God. They did so in the power of the Spirit. We asked the question, what's going on here? Well, they were gathering and worshiping, in the, and they were worshiping in the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit did something remarkable. The Spirit gave them another language to speak and praise God. I think this would be like if you um, grew up in Portage your entire life. You never ventured out of Portage. Never saw Laporte, never saw Lake County or like these magical lands that exist outside of here. What is that? <laughs> and someone was like, hey, um, you know, like you've never lived outside of Portage. Imagine. You live in Hobart, but that's fine. Uh, and uh, can you give me some Mandarin right now? It's just something otherly for us to think about downloading a language instantaneously and being able to communicate it. Something magical about that. But what if one day the Spirit fell on you, you found words in Mandarin that made sense to you, and you actually communicated to the local man from China who happened to be visiting Portage? All of us would wonder, 
have you been hanging out with Pastor Tim Chen? When did you pick out Mandarin? Like, this is incredible. It would astound us. Um, some of you know our, um, our student ministry intern, Tim Philatov. Tim, come on up here. Tim, this is Tim, everybody. I think we're going to give you this microphone here. Um, Tim is uh, a Moody student right now. He's uh, going to be a senior this year. He's been spending his summer working, um, dare I say, working tirelessly, but well, that's, that's yet to be determined. Uh, we're working with us with our students, Awana, our VBS, our, our kids ministry uh, in our building, just doing an awesome job. Tim has a superpower that many of you don't know of. Um, Tim, why don't you go ahead and show us your superpower? Dobre jutro, sobranja. Ja Tima i tak prikrasna bet ste s vami i prakljnjaza Isusom. That was incredible. Uh, who knows what language he was speaking? Russian. You watch a lot of spy movies, don't you? <laughs> and uh, what did he say? Something about worship. Tim, what did you say? I said, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Tim, and it's great to be here with you, worshiping Jesus. Yeah, it's so close, you know. You almost got it. Almost anointed. Almost the gift of interpretation, I guess. I don't know. Hey, can we hear it for Tim? Tim, we love you, we love you bro. We're thankful, thankful that you're here. Tim's actually doing an amazing job with us. Um, I've known Tim since he was in seventh grade, and I was taller than him at that moment. But just super proud of what God's doing in Tim's life. Um, it's one thing to become bilingual, right? Like, that's a gift. You know, Tim's parents are from Russia, and Tim's grown up here, and so he knows both English and Russian. That's happened over time. It's another thing to simply get plugged into the matrix and know kung fu. And if that reference doesn't make sense, it's okay. All I'm saying is that language isn't something you just download and use fluently. If this happened today, wouldn't you and I be floored? Wouldn't you and I be kind of like asking the question, how long have you been working on that, bro? Like, wouldn't you and I be so skeptical this is like a linguistic flash mob? Like all these people have been practicing behind our backs to be able to like for one moment unveil their powers. We would be curious about this. And curious people were. This was no ordinary crowd of people. Look at what Luke tells us in verse 5 as we keep moving. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why? Because it was Pentecost. And at the sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians, you get the picture? The whole world is here. And everyone is hearing in their own native tongue, non-native speakers, proclaiming what? The works, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Or another way to say it is, what's going on here? But others were mocking, and they said, well, they're just filled with new wine. This must have been a bad batch of Cab Sav that they all drank. It must be a cult, you know what I mean? I saw an episode. It must be that. 
These people are praising God in foreign languages, and people who hear these foreign languages hear this new tongue and are drawn to it. Have you ever heard your own native tongue when you're in a foreign place? Kristen and I uh, took a trip down to Haiti with some college students a couple of years ago, and we were down there doing some work. They speak a dialect of Creole in Haiti where we were, and we stopped on the way back after a long day of work uh, at this like little bistro restaurant, and um, we were ordering our food, and everybody was kind of sitting in one place, and from the other side of the restaurant, we heard the thickest Chicago accent we've ever heard in our lives. We were like, whoa, there's another one of us. <laughs> Found out that the guy lived eight miles away from where we lived. Wasn't with our group, just lived, just both of us traveled down there. What did we do? We heard the language and we rushed over to them. Why? Well, you know that, that, that feeling of feeling like an outsider, then knowing someone relates to you and can speak your language. You rush to them and you say, tell me more. Can you just talk to me? Can I hear, can I hear your language? This is what was happening in the presence of all of these Jewish people in this day. The same thing happened here. Is that all of the Jews from across Pentecost were gathering to the city for this weekend. They hear one another using their own native tongue. And they hear the mighty works of God that Jesus Christ is alive. That he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. But God raised him up and rose him from the dead. If you're taking notes, you can just jot this down. Number two, the, the, the first church worshiped in the presence of unbelievers. Do you see it? In the presence of unbelievers. They worshiped and gathered in the power of the Spirit, but that power of the Spirit moved them to the presence of unbelievers. They left the upper room where they must have been and went out into the streets to proclaim the goodness of God. And unbelievers were there. It might seem weird to us to call a Jewish person an unbeliever, but these were Jewish people in Jerusalem not there to worship Jesus. They were there to carry out their dead religious acts before God. They were there to transact with God, to barter with God, not to believe in his mighty works. They had seen Jesus die, but that event hadn't changed them. You know, you can be religious and still be an unbeliever. Do you know that? You can come to church. You can even raise your hands in worship or put money in the offering basket or even serve with VBS and in your heart trying to earn good graces from God. Meanwhile, you don't actually want God. You don't know who his son is. You don't know what he's done for you. You just want to be a good person and do more good things than you do bad things. So you do that in the context of your religion. You can be religious and still really far from God. You could three times a year take a pilgrimage to the holiest city and still not know what God did through Jesus. But when the Spirit's power fell upon the first church, they praised God for his mighty works in the presence of those who had yet to believe. And the Jews asked one another, they said it, uh, what does this mean? What's going on here? Someone said they're drunk, but then Peter, one of the apostles, got up and said, nonsense, you guys, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. And if you're drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, please get help, right? That's Peter's point. It's just 9 o'clock in the morning. There's no way they're drunk. And then he takes the moment. And look, at, look at me here in verse 16. He preaches a message. He says, but this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament, guys? You know the Old Testament. That's like our only testament. In these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter takes the opportunity in the presence of unbelievers to preach a sermon. What is a sermon? You're like, well, if we've got to answer the question, like, what's going on here? We've got to, like, answer and define, like, what's this right now? What's a sermon? Some of you are like, I've been trying to figure that out for the last 20 minutes, dude. What is this? What is this? Like, is this like a soliloquy? Is this a monologue? Is this... A sermon is simply the application of God's truth to today's situations. A sermon is simply whenever anyone, you don't have to be a pastor to preach a sermon, you don't have to be like a religious person to preach a sermon, but whenever you open up God's words and say, here's what it says, and here's what it means for us today, that's a sermon. It's bridging the worlds of God in the past to the people of God here in the present. And three times in this sermon, Peter appeals to the written word of God. He says in verse 16, this is what Joel says. In verse 34, Peter quotes David from Psalm 110. And in verse 25, he quotes Peter, David, I'm sorry, from Psalm 16. And when Peter is doing this and preaching, he is a He's appealing to scripture. The first church is gathering together in the power of the spirit, in the presence of unbelievers, and in the testimony and witness to the scriptures, in the witness of the scriptures. Friends, listen, listen, listen. A sermon is nothing if it is not scriptural. Like the day that I get up here and I say, hey, you know, I was reading Newsweek this week and saw this article in the New Yorker and the Atlantic had this thing online and BuzzFeed. You should fire me. Because a sermon comes from God's word. That's where the power is. As Peter preaches to these people, he preaches the words of God, the witness of scripture. And I wonder, do you see how spiritual this is? For many of us, you know, I'm, I'm not just a nerd who likes church and preaching and all of my podcasts are sermons, but um, I know that the hardest 40 minutes a week for some of you is right now. I read the other day that the um, attention span of the modern goldfish is nine seconds. The attention span of the modern human is eight, which means that I'm done. I got nothing for you. No, like literally, I'm in now like about a half hour in almost and like done. Like I got, I got, what can I give to you? Here we are. Preach a 40-minute sermon. Why 40 minutes? It's in the Bible. I'm just kidding. It's not in the Bible. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. It's our, it's, we, we think that's what it takes for us to explain God's word. It's like what we have set aside. You don't walk out after 40 minutes. You walk out after 50, but not 40. So we do 40. And what we're doing here is so spiritual Because you're not just hearing words from a 32-year-old guy. You're hearing 2,000-year-old words from the Holy Spirit. 
You're hearing the words of God that God penned down into action that existed through all times and all cultures and all situations so that we all might know what God says today. And notice as Peter is pushing in the witness of Scripture, showing them that, that when you gather together in the power of the Spirit and the presence of unbelievers in the witness of Scripture, you're more than a crowd. I pray eagerly that we approach these times together to ask the Spirit to do what he does, which is to apply his own truth to our hearts, to bring comfort to us in our pain, to bring comfort to us in our sorrows, to bring joy in the midst of our lives and hope. So, so what are we doing here? We're being reminded and refreshed as the Spirit, as the Word of God is spoken into our hearing, which makes us more than a crowd today something far greater altogether. And look at what Peter pushes us on. He gives an explanation. You know, Peter is a basic pastor. This is how we all learn to preach. We say, don't you remember this passage? And then we say, here's what it means. Verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Ouch. Peter's a good preacher who knows his audience. Peter knows that just 50 days ago, these men of Israel gathered together in a very similar location and started a riot. These very same people just 50 days ago looked upon Jesus of Nazareth who had claimed to be the Son of God here to bring wholeness back to a broken world. And they would have nothing of it. And instead, they plotted and schemed against him, even though they couldn't find anything wrong with him. They trumped up some charges for him, brought him to the Roman, uh, the Roman leader, and then said, hey, you need to crucify this guy. He's claiming to be in conflict with your kingdom. And Pilate, they watched him vacillate back and forth, not knowing what to do, not knowing what to do, washing his hands in their midst saying, I'll have no part in this. These very same people who Peter is speaking to just 50 days before shouted out with one voice, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And these very same people watched Jesus be crucified at the hands of Roman guards just 50 days earlier. What's most insidious about all of that to me is that having put Jesus upon the cross, they must have gone back to their Passover celebration, feeling as if they were fulfilling the will of God, doing their acts of dead religious works. And I imagine these men, as they got home from that Passover trip, sitting down around their own tables with their family, their wife asks them, well, how was Passover this year? And they say, Man, people are crazy. The world's just going nuts. I mean, there were riots. Some dude, like, cleared the temple out. Can you imagine? He said he was God. He was crazy. We took care of that guy. That guy, he won't bother us again. Man, just, it's a weird time we live in. And then here they are 50 days later, back in Jerusalem. And now it's not just one person saying that he was the son of God, but there's 120 other people who say that they follow that one person that was crucified because he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. 
And not only that, they're speaking miraculously. All of them seem to have the gift of tongues to be able to speak to whomever comes across their path with however they need to talk to them to tell them the mighty works that God did in raising Jesus from the dead. Can you imagine what must be going on in the hearts of these Jewish people, watching Jesus die, then coming back 50 days later and seeing his followers all do this miraculous sign? I mean, you may be the most skeptical person in the world, but wouldn't you be wondering, wouldn't you be going, this is crazy. This is like so crazy, maybe it's true. Like this is so nuts, but there's gotta be something more to it. And so Peter here is making this case for them from the Old Testament that God said this would happen before the day of the Lord. And it really seemed like God planned this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In verse 24, Peter shares the good news. At the center of everything going on here in Acts chapter 2, at the center of everything going on here at our church at Bethel HP, there's got to be the central focus of this good news right here. Peter takes the opportunity as the first church is gathered together to worship God. They're doing this, what are they doing? They're uplifting Jesus Christ. They're uplifting Jesus Christ. Look at what the rest of the sermon says. I want you to notice how emphatic Peter is about what God did through Jesus. Look, look with me in verse 24. Are you still with me? You're being so patient. I mentioned eight seconds. You're like, I got more than that. And you do. You do. It says this, God raised him up. You killed him, but God raised him up. Do I have a church today? Okay. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, this is Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Like you can go see it. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Like you can't forget, this is only 50 Days after Jesus was raised. We're all witnesses. We've all seen it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, uh, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And here's his bottom line. He says this, let all the house of Israel, that is all the family of Jewish people, let all the nation of Israel, let every Jewish man, woman, and child therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, which means the person who is most important in the entire universe, and Christ, which means the long-awaited Messiah that does the work that God sent him to do. That in Jesus, we have both a Lord and the Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Amen. Amen. Thanks, Misty. We'll invite Peter to come preach next time. Daggers and everything. Notice that, how direct Peter is, right? You killed him. Preaching classes today, they don't really teach you to lead with, like, the harshest truth. Peter says, you killed him, dude. You murdered him. But God raised him up. God exalted him. And today we worship him as Lord and Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified. Hey, why do we preach? Well, in one way, it's to glorify God in the reading of his word and the praise of his people. But we also preach for the result that comes here in verse 37. Look at this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Have you ever been cut to the heart before hearing a sermon? I have. I have had moments where I sit in this chair here when someone else is preaching or at other churches and I will hear the word of God and the Spirit's like shining a spotlight in my face. It's uncomfortable, right? All right, like it's kind of uncomfortable. You're like, did that guy stalk me all week? I need a better security system. He's reading my mail. They were cut to the heart. It means they were so convicted by what the Spirit was pressing in through the application of the Spirit's words. And they asked the question that I hope that you ask. What should I do? Like, what do I do? This is not a bad question. Sometimes in churches we get the opinion that, like, all you got to do is preach and leave the results up to God. Yes, that's true, but check this out. In the first church, people asked a question. They said, what should I do? Not what should I know. Not what should I feel. We already know what they felt. What should I do? As they were uplifting Jesus Christ, making much of him, Peter says to them, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want to say it for us. What's going on here? Well, the first church is gathering in the power of the Spirit, in the presence of unbelievers, in the witness of Scripture, uplifting Jesus Christ. Why? To call for a change. To call for a change. That's what repentance is. It's a change of direction, a change of behavior, a change of your will, a change of your momentum. You were walking this way, and then you were called to stop. To repent literally means to change around, to turn directions, and walk back towards God in his power. To, to repent. And friends, we are more than a crowd of people who are waiting on the world to change. Like, may we not be the church that's just, like, secluded from everybody else, waiting for them to get their act together so that we can then come out of our hiding. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're here together, gathered together to call for change, to ask the Lord to change us, to, to say, God, we need you. And we are ambassadors for that hope, that good triumphs over evil, that justice triumphs over injustice, that peace wins out over war, that grace is greater than guilt. We are people who call others to experience the power of lasting change when it comes when we trust Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And here's how this looks. You don't come to church and look up at me or whoever's on the stage and go, change! As if I had like, 
you know, spidey webs coming out of me and like, change. Do it. Just do it. No. We come together in the power of the Spirit. And it's not from here to here. It's from here to here saying, change. God, I'm calling for a change. I know I need you. As your word has been unfolded in my life and the Spirit's been speaking to me as I'm convicted by the presence here, God, would you just change me to look more like Jesus? For some of us, that change that needs to happen is the change of our internal hearts. We're so prone to trying to make ourselves appeased by God to be, actually have faith in Jesus. Internal faith that causes internal real change. The first church gathered in the power of the Spirit in the presence of unbelievers and the witness of Scripture. But what were they doing? They were uplifting Jesus Christ as Lord for the purpose to call for change. And then look at verse 39 with me. This is number six. Is to, um, is to share the promise. Look at what he says. Look at what he says. He says, for this promise is for you and for your children. That means everyone in the future and for all who are far off. In that day, it meant like for those who didn't make the trip back here to Jerusalem for Pentecost, for those who can't even be with us today, and there's a promise embedded right here that says, for those who love God, for those who know Jesus, this promise is that though you are far from him by the power of the Spirit, you can be brought near to God. You can be changed. There is a promise that no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter if you've even been the exact people who put Jesus Christ up on the cross and held the nails in his hands and held the nails in his feet, even you can repent and change. That's the promise. What are we doing here? We are here. We are here to share the promise. We, we are here to share the promise, the mission of God. The promise here is that all of us who are far off can be brought near because Jesus defeated sin on the very cross. All who believe are welcomed into a relationship with God. That's the greatest promise. And friends, that's why we're more than a crowd. Because we're a group of people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and are forgiven. We have a commonality to us that is uncommon to the rest of crowds. We're all sinners, but we're sinners with the greatest promise of God's love and God's power. On this day, when the first church gathered, many, 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 many saw the Spirit's power. They heard the witness of God's word. They found Jesus to be the Savior and Lord. They, they were called to change and enter the promise. And many people this day stepped out of the crowd they stepped out of the crowd and stepped into God's family. And here's how this whole entire thing ends in verse 41. Look at this. This is just outstanding. From 120 people, this happens. So those who received his word were baptized. Amen? And, though, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen? Why about 3,000 souls? Because Luke interviewed a pastor. And pastors always round up. <laughs> it was probably like 2,742. We just say it's about 3,000. But here's the point, right? It's like way more. I don't know the math. 120 into 3,000, is that 50? Literally, I don't know the math. Should have done that beforehand. 50 times the miracle took place in that one day as the first church gathered together in the power of the Spirit. 
in the presence of unbelievers, in the witness of Scripture, uplifting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to call for a change, to share the promise. And here's what was going on. They were there, number seven, number seven, you've been so patient, to see the mission succeed. To see the mission succeed. Why did the Spirit fall on the people in such a way that they spoke in tongues? Not because, I don't think that was the point. Why did the Spirit do that? Because the Spirit always has a job to point our attention to Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus is continuing on in the building of his church. The Spirit's mission is to call those who are far from God to come near to God. To, to recognize his work and his power and his wonder and his majesty. To recognize that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can enter in to heavenly rest. That at the end of the day, the first church worshiped together. They did so, not because they were a crowd. No, they were more than a crowd. They were the family of God. That's our first family that has since this moment right here continued to grow. So much so that here we are 2,000 and some years later in Hobart, Indiana. I read it earlier, but um, they, they asked this question, and how is it that we each hear, each of us in our own native language? Did you know the Bible was not written in English? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Capia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, Lake County residents and Porter County residents and Laporte County residents and Bears fans and Cubs fans and Sox fans and blue collar workers and white collar workers and those raised in Spanish speaking homes and those raised in English speaking homes. Friends, what's happening right here is not that we are just a crowd. You go to a crowd when you buy a ticket and you go watch a movie, or you go to a crowd when you buy a ticket and you go watch a sporting event. When you come here, it feels like you're in a crowd, but friends, you are not in a crowd. When you come here, you walk through these doors, you join hands in, in, the, in the spiritual DNA we all have at the common base of the cross, in the power of the Spirit, as we gather together in the witness of Scripture. We are here as the family of God, to uplift Jesus and watch the mission succeed. And God does this. God does this as he calls us to step out of the crowd and into his family.